FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. This morning we are talking about strokes and stroke awareness as it is Stroke Awareness Month. And from Ascision St. Thomas Rutherford this morning, we have Dr. Brett Donegan and Sylvia McLaughlin to talk more about that. So I guess starting off this morning, tell us a little bit more first about yourself and what got you into the role of being in the medical world. So I'm uh, Dr. Brett Donegan. Uh, I'm an interventional radiologist with Murfreesboro Vascular Interventional, and I work at uh, Ascension St. Thomas Rutherford. I mean, I've been interested in uh, medicine and being a physician since I was a little kid almost, but basically background in engineering, which I did when I was uh, an undergrad, uh, and medicine is kind of like engineering for the human body. And so uh, I get to do really cool procedures and help people. And so I always found those things interesting and very rewarding. What do you do day in and day out? What, what do you see each day? Yeah, so um, I'm an interventional radiologist, uh, which most people don't have any idea what that means when they meet me. <laughs> um, basically, I do image-guided procedures. And specifically, you know, what we're talking about today with stroke is uh, image-guided procedures for stroke or what's called mechanical thrombectomy. And that's a procedure. So a stroke, most of the people when they have, are having a stroke is what's called an ischemic stroke where a blood clot is in a large artery in the brain and it's uh, restricting blood flow to part of the brain and causing to have abnormal uh, problems with speech, problems with walking, movement, uh, vision, those types of things. Uh, and it's a very acute problem and they need someone to remove that blood clot to restore blood flow to the brain. And so what I do is a procedure called thrombectomy where we go through the artery in the groin with a catheter, which is a little plastic tube, and it goes all the way up to the artery in the brain, and we pull out that clot uh, using suction or using uh, stent-like devices, metal devices, to restore blood flow and hopefully reverse the symptoms that person's having. So do you do that when the patient is asleep, or are they awake and fully conscious and, and know what's going on? Because it sounds a little, uh, a little painful. Yeah, um, it's uh, so we don't do it with anesthesia uh, generally. Uh, rare circumstances we might, but generally the person's awake. That being said, it's it's generally most of the things we tell people uh, for procedures like this is that you don't feel things on the inside of the arteries, for instance. You don't feel the things that we're doing except for the very beginning when we give you a numbing shot. And so it, it's not really a painful procedure. Honestly, though, most of the time when people are having a, a stroke like this, they're really not, they might be conscious, you know, but they're really not understanding what's going on. Most of the people, when I talk to them afterwards, they don't really remember what happened. They might not even remember the first day or two in the hospital, even if they made a really good recovery. Most of the time it's local anesthesia, maybe a little bit of medications through the IV for if they're really agitated or having trouble, but but not with anesthesia generally. So a lot of times you're dealing with people who are already at that stage where they've had a stroke or they're in the process of having one. They're in the process of having a stroke, yeah. And so that's one of the key things uh, for Stroke Month of raising awareness is that, you know, time is uh, is very valuable. Um, every minute that the brain is deprived of oxygen, of blood flow, uh, is a time that the stroke is getting worse. 
And what we're trying to do is get that blood clot removed as fast as possible to save as much of the brain as possible and hopefully restore as much function as possible. And so we want people to, to not live with disability or at least minimal disability. Most of the people that we're, that we're treating, are, they're going to have a stroke. It's just a question of how big of a stroke that is. And if it's small enough and not in critical areas of the brain, then we can hopefully get them back to their normal lives or at least something close to it. And now headed to Sylvia McLaughlin. You are the stroke coordinator, so you, you hear that title. All right, folks, here's the strokes that you're going to have today. What what do you do each day? Right. So actually, I'm the stroke program coordinator. So my main role is, is we are a certified um, stroke center by the Joint Commission. So my primary role is that I'm the person responsible to make sure that we're meeting all of those standards and quality metrics. Um, that we're doing all of the things um, that our guidelines say to do for stroke patients as far as how to care for them, um, what kind of, you know, how quickly we do some of these things, such as Dr. Donegan's procedure. Uh, I do a lot of education of staff. Uh, and so I do a little of everything. I do a lot of data analysis. I do a lot of staff education, EMS education, and um I really just kind of, I'm the overall coordinator of the program itself. I don't coordinate when people have strokes, <laughs> but I help to coordinate when they do have a stroke that we're providing them the proper care. So when somebody comes to the hospital and it's, you know, right there in the middle of a stroke, and I'm guessing that first stop is the emergency room. If it's a family member bringing them in saying something's not right, they take them to the ER. And then what happens after that? Yeah, so generally, you know, stroke alert is going to be called, which is that there's a potential stroke and they're going to be evaluated by the emergency medicine physician um, as well as a neurologist, uh, which we have excellent neurologists that do a great job. They're here 24-7 at our hospital. And uh, the first step after that, you know, once they're assessed, they're saying there might be a stroke because they're going to get a CT scan of their head. That's a scan of the brain. Uh, to make sure that there's no bleeding. So there's different types of strokes. We generally break them into uh, bleeding type strokes and ischemic strokes, which is the stroke where you have a blood clot, which we're, we've been talking about. Most of the strokes are on that spectrum. Some strokes are smaller and uh, are, are they're involving a smaller artery in the brain. Uh, but regardless, if the person's having a stroke that's because of a blood clot, we, if, we're, if they're eligible, we want them to get what's called a TPA or TNK, a drug that can dissolve the blood clot that's given through an IVs. It's not something that I do, but generally the neurologists and the emergency medicine physicians uh, decide whether that's uh, if they're eligible. So they'll get that. And then if there's concern that they're having a large vessel occlusion, which is one of the large arteries in the brain, which might be eligible for the procedure that I do, then we'll get more advanced imaging, which is a CT scan that shows us all the arteries from the uh, from the chest all the way up to the brain. Uh, to show us where the clot is at and help us plan on how to get there. And I'm sure each patient has some different signs or symptoms, but I'm sure there's also some symptoms that are very similar depending on what type of stroke you have. Uh, so what are these patients presenting when they come in? What do you see and how are they acting and reacting? Yeah, so there's some classic symptoms and then there's symptoms that are kind of vague. And so the, the ones we talk about are helping with a mnemonic B fast. So B for balance or unsteadiness. E for eyes, so changes in vision, particularly loss in one side of vision or one eye. F as in face, so a person's face droops on one side side of the other typically or they might have numbness on one side of the other arm or leg also limb if you have weakness in one arm or leg particularly on one side of the body 
asks for speech, so changes in speech. So if you can't understand speech, if you can't make speech, and then T is for time, so get to the ER, call 911. But those are the typical symptoms. There are some, you know, like I said, other symptoms that are, are less classic, a little more vague that might still be a stroke. Headache, we also sort of, you know, when you talk about hemorrhagic stroke is a big one, you know, the worst headache I've had in my life. Um, might be also a symptom, but those are the kind of typical things we like to tell people, and those are typically what we'll see. Is there an average age of patient that you routinely see, or is it all over the map? You know, anybody can have a stroke. Um, they talk about pediatric strokes even. Most people are, are older. So, you know, I'd say once you get into the 60s and 70s, those are the high-risk areas. But the older you get, the more likely you're going to have more medical comorbidities, you know, heart problems, lung problems, kidney problems. Those tend to occur later in life, and as well as the effects of aging and of maybe not having the greatest diet or not exercising or smoking. Those things are the things that build up over your lifetime cause these things to happen later in life. And so that, those are kind of be the age ages, you know, older people, but anybody can have a stroke at any age. So somebody who is at home and and they know something's wrong, but they're not real sure. And they could be having a stroke. Are they able to pick up the phone, call 911? Or when you have a stroke, are you unable to think clearly? What What is that person going through? Well, it depends on, you know, where, what arteries blocked and what kind of symptoms they're having. You know, I've talked to some people and they, they're literally having a stroke right in front of you and they will say, no, I'm not, there's nothing wrong. Or they, but you're hold seeing up. something wrong while they're saying nothing's wrong, exactly. right? Exactly. Or you might say that, you know, really strange things that can happen in neurology, but you know, you'll hold up their hand and say, who's hand in this? And they'll say that's your hand and you're holding up their hand. And so, you know, and, and really disabling strokes, it can be a challenge for somebody who's on their on their own. They may not be able to call 911. So if you have someone that might be at risk for that, you know, checking in on them, even day to day or, or calling them uh, or if they have uh, an alert bracelet or something like that, that could help. Uh, uh, that might be something that could save them from from disability. That being said, some people, you know, do realize something's wrong and uh, and they might be able to call 911. So it just depends on exactly what type of stroke they're having and how bad their symptoms are. When you talk about the brain, there, there's so many avenues within the brain that are not yet discovered. I mean, there's a lot to discover for scientists, I, I'm sure. But what are some of the more bizarre reactions you have seen when somebody is having a stroke and, and why do you see bizarre reactions? Like you were saying, you hold up their hand and you ask them whose hand it is and they don't even realize it's theirs. Mm -hmm. What causes that? Um, and the actual neuroscience of it, you know, I'm not uh, going to be an ex expert on why some of these things happens and some of these things we don't know why they happen. But uh, <clears throat> I mean, that is one of the kind of stranger things that can happen is when you when you, it's called neglect, when they don't recognize a side of their body. Uh, but there's if, if you look into the weird syndromes and stuff, there's like alien hand syndrome and all these things that can happen in the brain when you have certain things that happen in just certain locations. Um, but yeah, I mean, most of the people that that I see. You can almost, you know, I'll walk into the room and I've a lot of times seen the imaging. So I've seen the CT scan and I know this artery is blocked and I can pretty much walk into the room and say, hey, do they, you know, they have a right MCA syndrome. You might say like they have all these symptoms. I can just read them off uh, because it's just that when it's that large of a blood vessel, it's almost always the same type of symptoms. And that's not 100%, but, you know, it's very characteristic. The smaller strokes are the things that are a little, you know, might say only a tiny stroke in the brainstem or something like that, those can have very, you know, difficult symptoms to recognize and tease out that someone's, they might have, even the physicians that see them initially might not recognize they're having a stroke. So it really just kind of depends on how big of a blood vessel and where in the brain it's at, but there can be, certainly be 
very odd things that can happen. So, no, I, I've heard of cases where somebody can literally have a small heart attack and, and not realize that's what they're having is a heart attack. And they survive, and it may not be discovered until their next doctor's appointment that there's a lot of damage there caused by something, and mm-hmm. you, it was a heart attack. It's the same sort of you know idea. There's going to be small heart attacks, uh, small strokes, large heart attacks, large strokes. So, a large you know heart attack, a large blood vessel that has a problem. You talk, you talk about the typical symptoms, you know, have chest pain, difficulty breathing, those types of things. But uh, particularly, for instance, in some populations like diabetics or women uh, that don't necessarily have the cl- classic symptoms that everybody's taught in med school or you might see in a TV show or something, um, they might have just some indigestion type symptoms. And I'm not a cardiologist, but, but uh, you know, they might have evidence that they've had a, st- or, yeah, a heart attack on an EKG later. And, and if they're small, they might not might not have all those bad symptoms at the moment. So. So, so if somebody can live through a heart attack and survive that, can they live through a stroke if they don't realize they're having a stroke and then, you know, go on for the next week and have those stroke symptoms? They continue, but they don't realize it. Yeah. So there's sort of two things I think you're kind of talking about. One is just you had a stroke and we might not, it might be in the brain that's not, uh, specifically localizable to say like your arm or for instance for instance and you might get a ct scan or an mri at some point and we say oh you've had a stroke in the past and it wasn't something that necessarily was picked up at the time uh and then you can have some people call them like mini strokes uh but we say like tias or transient ischemic attacks basically either it's a really small stroke that or it's and the symptoms go get back to normal even though you had a stroke really fast uh or you had something that was reversed so your body actually makes these drugs take tpa and it's you know ourselves and so it, it dissolves clots on its own so if you had a really small artery that was blocked and you had some vague symptoms um and then the clot went away on its own the blood flow restored itself on its own then your symptoms go away and so you know that's those people that have those types of things are at high risk for having a major stroke afterwards so anytime you have symptoms like that that you're concerned about you need to see you know a doctor or go to the er and uh have it evaluated to make sure that you're not having a stroke had a stroke or at risk for a stroke in the future again dr brett donegan with us this morning and also sylvia mclaughlin talking about strokes this is stroke awareness month and ascension st thomas rutherford hospital uh you guys are totally outfitted and prepared to take on any stroke i guess yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's one of the major goals of the last year that we've had is to uh, to develop the thrombectomy program, which is what me and my uh, uh, physicians in my group do. Um, that was not something that was present at St. Thomas Rutherford before April of, of last year. Uh, so it's it's a really big undertaking, uh, but it's something that you know for the community, particularly with all the growth that's happened here, uh, more and more people are having strokes and more people are becoming eligible for the procedure itself. And, you know, before the program started here at St. Thomas Rutherford, you had to go to Nashville, essentially, or maybe Chattanooga if you were closer there. But, you know, you didn't have anywhere and you didn't have anywhere to go directly. Uh, You could stop here and maybe get TPA or TNK. uh, But for large strokes, that's more than likely not going to do the, you know, do the job. And so uh, now... We don't have to go to Nashville. You don't have to drive or, or take a helicopter or whatever it is. You can go get your treatment right here 
save time and hopefully save people from from disability when looking at a patient and deciding if you know they are someone who may possibly have a stroke are are there imaging tests that can be done ahead of time to to kind of learn you know hey i'm in that stroke zone i'm at a place where i could have a stroke such as you know you hear about these 50 dollar tests where you can find out how much calcification Mm -hmm. of your blood vessels you have uh, just by stopping by any number of imaging centers is that one of those things where you can kind of learn if you need to take other steps? Yeah, so the, the risk factors for, for stroke that uh, will be present on imaging, the, the usual ones we would talk about would be something to look at the arteries. So, <clears throat> for instance, one of the things that's a risk for stroke would be carotid stenosis, which just means a narrowing in the carotid artery, which is the big artery in the neck that supplies blood to your brain. And so that's a very common place to develop atherosclerotic plaque, which is, uh, you know, or pickle hardening of the arteries. Things that cause narrowing in the arteries, the same thing that cause heart attacks and so um ultrasounds can show us uh whether those are uh, how bad that narrowing is and so talking to your primary care doctor or whoever takes care of you about you know whether that's something that you would uh, need to be have done for screening um uh, that's a good test that's pretty cheap and and easy and non-invasive to do. Um, Other things would be like CT scans or MRIs to look at the blood vessels and depending on your risk factors or what the ultrasound shows, that might be another thing that uh, would be something that could be done uh, to look to evaluate your arteries and see if they're if you have a risk for stroke. Um, lastly, would be things which are not imaging, but you know abnormal heart rhythms called atrial fibrillation or AFib. Uh, very common, particularly as people get older or if they have heart disease. Um, you know an EKG a lot of times or a monitor that you wear uh, at home if you if there's a risk or a concern that you might have that. Um, those are that's another test that can help to determine if you need to be on, for instance, a blood thinner. When you look at problems like AFib, if you receive that diagnosis. What does that mean? Does that mean the heart could slow down and you have to speed it back up? Uh, And then SVT would be what, where it speeds up or or skips a beat? What are the differences of that and, and, and why are those significant with the possibility of a stroke. Yeah. So I'm not a cardiologist. So I'm going to get in trouble here. But uh, <laughs> so uh, atrial fibrillation, though, uh, most of the time when people have a problem, it's so first of all, it's an irregular heartbeat. So what happens is you have the atria, which are the chambers at the top of the heart. And usually they're, you know, they contract in a rhythmic, you know, as your heart beats, they're contracting and they get blood into the ventricles, which are the large parts of the heart, uh, which are the powerful things that pump blood to the rest of the body. And so an atrial fibrillation, that just means that instead of that normal contracting motion that is supposed to happen, uh, that's a disorganized contraction. So the, some of the parts of the muscle contract and others don't. And so it's, it's not organized and pushing blood into the ventricles like it's supposed to. And the problem with that is when you push the blood where it's supposed to go, it stays in that spot for a short period of time. It comes in, it goes out. Whereas when it's, there's a disorganized muscle contraction in AFib, it tends to stay in the same spot. And one of the things that causes blood clots is blood staying in the same spot. Um, and so that's one of the things that can happen with the heart. So now when you're talking about the heart speeding up, so some people get AFib with RVR, which just means the, uh, the, because of AFib, they go into a very fast heart rate, actually. Um, SVT can kind of have a similar you know, a presentation because it's the same thing. The the heart's beating fast. They're just for different reasons and they have different treatments. But that's something, you know, uh, I don't, 
if you're having something that where your heart's beating fast, uh, you can be seen by in, in the emergency department. They can figure out which one of those are uh, are going on and talk to a cardiologist and decide which treatments you need to have. Hey, and I'm sure both of those are very common. So for listeners out there hearing that, that they don't need to all of a sudden get scared if they've been recently diagnosed with that because they're very treatable, right? Right, right. And so one of the things, so AFib, for instance, may come and go. You know, it doesn't necessarily happen all the time. Uh, there are... Uh, treatments for as far as stroke go will usually you'll be assessed for what your bleeding risk is and what your stroke risk is and that determines whether you need to be on a blood thinner which many people are, are on uh, and or sometimes there's procedures that cardiologists do to uh, to help fix uh, AFib and and put you back into a normal rhythm and, and all those things again are would be something that you know a cardiologist would look at to decide what the appropriate thing to do is but there's a lot of different treatments but you know many people walk around with afib and they may be on a blood thinner or anything or something but uh it's it's a pill you have to take but it's not gonna you know it's, it's a low risk thing and it's going to keep you from having a stroke hopefully and uh, another thing uh, blood pressure we always hear about people's blood pressure and the need to get it in the right zone is blood pressure another one of those contributing factors to having an actual stroke absolutely it's one of the highest uh, it's one of the highest risk things for stroke and so um, you know blood pressure being high for long periods of time in particular you know if some people get very concerned oh my blood pressure is really high right now and and that doesn't that does need to be addressed for a long you know in the long term but usually it's not an immediate emergency unless you're having a stroke right now um, but getting your blood pressure under control either through medications or you know diet and exercise or a combination of those things will lower your risk of stroke and it'll lower your risk of heart attack and other all the vascular diseases essentially you know it's a risk factor for so uh, not only your risk of stroke but those other things that can be disabling or cause death or or cause uh, you know pain, all those types of things. So in fearing a stroke, is it the top number or bottom number of the blood pressure that folks should be more concerned about in preventing a stroke? Well, there's there's medic, there's uh, numbers that are high and low that are too high. And so we would look at both of those numbers. Um, typically, the systoc, the top number, is the one that people are more familiar with um and but usually we'll look at both numbers and so they need to be in a certain range and those ranges may vary depending on how old you are and what your risk factors for taking medications that lower your blood pressure but um there are certain ranges they need to be in and we want to get people in those ranges and we had a question from a listener who texted us asking about a silent stroke they said that their grandmother had one in recent years what is a silent stroke so I guess that's not really a, a medical term necessarily, but, you know, it, it would probably one of those things that we talked about before with uh, either they had a stroke that was just very small and non-disabling or that their symptoms got better over time because a lot of people are, even if they have a stroke, they're going to hopefully recover some function. Uh, and so if it's very small area of the brain, then they might recover that function a very quick period of time not realize they had it and but it's seen on imaging you know later for, for done for some other reason and we say oh well you had a small stroke at some point um and maybe you don't have any uh neurologic problems from that but we see that it happened or it could be a tia like we were talking about where someone has a blood clot and they're having symptoms of a stroke but then uh it dissolves itself and goes away on its own very fast and so it they didn't really realize necessarily that they had a stroke. So it could have been either those two things, maybe. It's wild to me to hear that somebody could actually have a stroke, not realize that they live, they survive and go on with their life. But 
if that does happen to somebody, are you going to see, you know, the aftermath of that stroke? Is it going to be recognizable fairly clearly by a doctor? It's always uh, about location in the brain. And so certain locations are, are kind of more valuable than others. So if, if it's in a if it's in an area where you have, uh, for instance, major speech uh, cortex, or if you have uh, areas that control the movement of your arms or legs, you know, that could leave you with disabling symptoms for life. Whereas if it's in some of the locations of the brain, which don't have a kind of a nice one-to-one mapping of you have a stroke, this is your symptom, then you might not have, you know, symptoms that are obviously attributable to that uh, to that stroke you know you, you see a lot of thing uh, uh, strokes small strokes in the basal ganglia which are these uh, small nuclei deep in the brain and they have really tiny arteries that go to them and a lot of times particularly with like high blood pressure they'll have small strokes that show up there and th- but they don't have a really good necessarily one-to-one mapping to say okay this is a stroke and you're going to have problems with your arm you know you might have vague symptoms or slightly uncoordinated symptoms or something like that or you might have no symptoms but then you just see it on a scan of the brain at some point down the line and say, oh, we had a stroke. So, Another question, why is it that some people have extreme problems with speech after a stroke and how long do those issues last with speech? So again, same thing. Um, it's just location. And so we know certain places in the brain uh, and particularly the speech centers, are, they're usually in very well-defined spots. And if you have a stroke, particularly for instance, if you have uh, for most people speech, um, understanding speech and making speech are on the left side of the brain. And so we know that if you have a stroke uh, that's affecting a large artery on the left side of the brain, most people are going to have speech issues. Um, if you are able to get either thrombolytics, that TPA, the clot-busting medication, and or the procedure that I do, which is to remove the clot and restore blood flow, uh, sometimes those symptoms will go away almost immediately. Uh, More commonly, they persist a little bit, but then over a few days, they start to get better. Uh, But some of those symptoms can take months to get better. And so, you know, I try to tell people, say we did the procedure and you know a day or two later we see them and they're still having pretty bad symptoms you know like take heart you know it's it, it may get better it may not get better but it may you know we we've got time and particularly with uh for post-stroke care you have occupational therapists and you know, physical therapists speech therapists uh who are going to help try and regain some of that function through through therapy so it can take a while for speech to come back sometimes speech may not ever come back to normal sometimes it may be mild problems with speech you know you can't find a word or you have you mix up words things like that uh sometimes it can be pretty significant but uh it, it can be variable for everybody but it can take a while it's just hard to imagine that somebody who uh, you know spoke p- perfectly clear just the day before then they have a stroke they're unable to put words together i, I mean i can't imagine that i can't imagine how frustrating that would be because after they've had the stroke, they realize they can't put their words together, right? Uh, they see it or they hear it. They just don't know how to change it. Most it's, it's one of those things where it's uh, it's very interesting, the types of things that can happen with speech. I mean, there's some locations where people, um, they, you know, they can understand that they're having a problem, right? They, they're trying to get the word out and they just can't find it. And you can see the frustration when you talk to them. But then you have other people who will just start talking words and they think they're making sense because in their head, you know, when they're trying to make the words, it makes sense. But it just comes out completely like nothing. So are they hearing it correctly, even though they're saying it incorrectly? Um, 
Well, hearing, I'm not sure that hearing would be the right word. It's, it's I guess in their, in their mind, they're, they're yeah, envisioning their, it correctly. Exactly. In their mind, when they're trying to form speech, you know, their, their brain is saying, here's what I want to say. But when, somewhere when it gets translated to the mouth, you know, it just completely different words come out and they don't necessarily realize that that's what's happening. And so and it really just depends. You know, there's very odd syndromes that can happen. And some of the neurologists would be certainly better at talking about those than me. But um, but there can be very odd things that can happen with speech. And again, it all just it really just depends on exactly where, you know, the stroke happens and what type of symptoms it can cause. I, I, you know, I, I can't imagine going through that. And, and you know, I don't know. I, I look at it like like Alzheimer's that frustration especially those early stages of alzheimer's it, it sounds similar to that in a lot of ways for that person who's going through it yeah well all of these involve you know essentially damage to the brain in fact uh so alzheimer's is a form of dementia but there's other types of dementia and one for instance would be vascular dementia so someone who accumulates multiple strokes over a period of time you know essentially they have so much damage to the brain from stroke that they develop dementia uh, just like alzheimer's and so uh that's another thing one of the long-term sequela uh, things that can happen because of accumulated strokes and, and vascular disease so when they're at the point of of needing you know your care in order to i guess go deeper and understand where exactly the stroke is have they already seen their normal physician and then they're referred to you or does all this happen pretty quick because a stroke seems like it's something that's pretty dangerous and needs to be taken care of yeah, very so, fast so for the most part i see people who are having acute strokes so uh people aren't generally getting referred to me for you know they had a stroke in the past or they're at risk factors for stroke a lot of times those are going to a neurologist Maybe if they had a narrowing in the artery and they weren't eligible for surgery, um, that might be an occasion. But for the most part, I'm seeing people who are having an acute stroke, you know, it's and it's really bad and it's right now and needs to be fixed. And so that's uh, that's the kind of thing that people see me for. And, and unfortunately, but fortunately that we have that stroke now. Stroke is an emergency. We want make everybody needs to know it's an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> and, and don't take a nap. <laughs> no, don't. Don't go to yeah. Disney World and That's come right. back, you know, next day. So, so you're yeah. talking about emergency medicine. I mean, they're seeing you right then after they come to the ER. I mean, this all happens very quickly. But yeah, yes. So basically as soon as possible. Yes. <laughs> as okay. soon as we can physically get there and you know, diagnose the issue, see the images and get them on the table for the procedure. That's uh, as fast as we can possibly do it. And then here's the big issue for a lot of people out there. They may have a stroke but there's nobody else around them and they may not fully realize what's going on. Uh, so how often does that occur? And they're not able to pick up the phone and, and dial 911 even. Yeah. Unfortunately that, that does happen. And so if you have someone that lives alone and, uh, and no one's checking on them day to day and stuff, you know, I've, I've seen people come in and, uh, you know, we saw our loved one maybe three days ago. We talked to them and then we came in we didn't hear from them or something. We went and checked on them and found them and they were having a stroke. And sometimes they were having a stroke that day and they get them to the ER and, and things get better. And then sometimes it's been going on for too long and there's nothing that can be done at that point. Um, and unfortunately, that's just something that can happen just, just like if you fell or had any kind of thing when you're living by yourself. Um, and so I think, you know, if you, if you have a loved one or someone that you care about that's at risk for things uh, and doesn't have anybody else, you know, checking on them, even if it's day to day, whenever you can uh, to make sure they're doing OK and then and then 
if something they don't answer if something seems like a miss checking on them and and because that could be that could change someone from having being bedbound and disabled for the rest of their life to being almost a normal life we had another question is a person feeling any sign or any pain whenever they are actually having the stroke Generally, they're not feeling a lot of pain. Um, as I kind of, the one caveat would be kind of headache for um, again mostly hemorrhagic stroke. We see that with for bleeding types of stroke. <clears throat> but generally, they're having uh, symptoms like weakness or or vision changes or speech problems. And that's one of the things with recognizing a stroke is that you know you see people particularly you might know somebody or you might have seen it on TV or something where they're having a heart attack or something as they you know they'll say oh the person's having severe chest pain and it's immediately obvious to everyone that there's not that there's a problem and they want to get to the to the emergency department whereas for a stroke sometimes particularly not the large vessel strokes but they might having a stroke that's so the symptoms aren't classic they're like something seems amiss but we can't you know and some people want to wait or they you know particularly the people that don't realize they're having a stroke you know they're, they're like no so everything's fine and they can't recognize the arm or something you know they need to get to the emergency department to be evaluated because it's not always a classic thing it's not a i'm having severe chest pain i'm they don't have generally severe headache or something they're they're having things that seem odd like oh my arm's not working or, or i can't find this word and that's not normal for me you know you need to be to be seen and evaluated so for those listening it sounds like the biggest thing is you need to know and understand what some of the signs of a stroke are so you recognize it in somebody else maybe your loved one your husband your wife whatever the case is because often the person who's having the stroke they're not gonna they're not gonna put it together and realize i'm having a stroke Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So, and that's one of the main things for for Stroke Month is, is, is raising awareness for what is a stroke and what does it look like when someone's having a stroke and what do you need to do. And so, if you can recognize those things, you can really you know prevent someone from having long term disability. It's just hard to understand how somebody out there who has a stroke they can't recognize their own arm or they can't feel their hand or you know they, they can't put words together just out of the blue because it happens very fast it, it's hard to comprehend that yeah i mean even when i was you know younger before i did medical training you know i would obviously had no medical training and so i didn't know a lot of these things and so you learn about these things in medical school and residency and those uh, types of places and uh and all the different just strange things that can happen or or symptoms that can happen because uh of strokes and things like that and uh it's it's not necessarily a, a common sense type of thing you know I, again with heart attacks you sometimes think okay well there's a blood vessel locked in your chest and you're having chest pain and you're having a heart attack and it seems very kind of straightforward and easy to understand whereas a stroke can be very odd symptoms you know and you're, you're things that like when you wake up sometimes and you have the pins and needles types of filling in your arm and you just think oh well that's you know, i slept on my arm wrong but uh you know there's symptoms like that that can be signs of a serious neurologic problem and so uh understanding what those are uh is very important for for lay people uh so that we can hopefully again prevent disability in people and it's it's definitely an interesting field to be in i, I could see where the draw 
would be. You know, it, it is fascinating. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I really enjoy, you know, obviously helping people. It's a very interesting, interesting procedure. Uh, it's very cutting edge. I mean, these types of procedures that we're talking about uh, really only in the last 10 years have become uh, standard of care. I mean, 2015 was really the first time that uh, we recognized, we had proof that these types of things even worked. And so, uh, and that evidence has just only gotten, you know, more and more over the last few years. Uh, but it's, it's very cutting edge. It, it involves doing really, you know, interesting things and it helps people. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to beat as far it's got a lot of adrenaline when it's happening. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's a very hard thing to beat, yep. uh, for me. Again, with us this morning, Dr. Brett Donegan and also Sylvia McLaughlin with Ascision St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital talking about strokes. And uh, as we kind of close out the show this morning, once more, some of those major things to look out for signs of a stroke. What are they? Yeah. So remember, be fast. So balance. Uh, eyes, so vision changes, particularly in one eye or one side of vision. Uh, F for face, you know, facial droop or facial numbness arm so weakness in an arm or a leg uh s for speech so difficulty understanding speech or making speech or or uh we call it dysarthria or like marbles in your mouth type of symptoms uh, and then t for time so call 911 uh, get help and how fast do these symptoms unfold for somebody I mean, they're almost immediate. As soon as the blood vessel uh, gets blocked, you know, it's it's a seconds to minutes type of thing. I mean, you start to have symptoms immediately, generally. And this could lead to death in some cases, right? Yeah, death is obviously bad. Uh, but <laughs> we, uh, you know, really focus more for me is on disability, um, you know. If someone's dead, that's bad. If someone's has a good recovery, excellent. But the problem is the people that have a disabling street. You know, they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't care for themselves. They, have, you know, they, they live in a bed for the rest of the life, having to have a feeding tube or uh, or someone wait on them twenty four seven in a nursing home. You know, that's what is is really bad. Um, and so, if we can take people from that to even if they have a stroke. You know, they might have difficulty with speech. They might not might not be normal for them, or they might have difficulty walking, but they can still do it. They can still stand uh, and and care for themselves and have meaningful conversation with their loved ones. You know, that's that's the big change that we're looking for. So the goal is to take care of it fast, so that you can help them immediately, and uh, you know, not suffer those long-term consequences. Absolutely. Again, talking about strokes this morning, we have Dr. Brett Donegan and also Sylvia McLaughlin, who is the program coordinator for stroke intervention there at Ascision St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital. And thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Peter Demas at Demas's Restaurant. So many people buy so many different things. You know, I go out to eat and I like eating steak where my wife will end up getting our salmon. Our salmon is cut fresh, so she loves our salmon. It's one of those places that you can go, you can get pastas or chicken, you know, the kids love it. Get what you want at Demas's Restaurant and not be limited just to one or two items. Join our family at Demas's Restaurant, 1115 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. When the unexpected happens, fire, water, or storm damage, Fair Construction can help. Fair Construction is also there to help when a car slams through the wall, and that seems to happen more often these days. I'm Ron Hall. Let our family at Fair Construction help you. Call Fair Construction, and we'll board up, put down tarps, secure your home or business until the insurance coverage is approved. I'm Ron Hall. Shop local. Let our family business help you. Fair Construction Company. 
If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. We are joined by the VA Deputy Executive Director of the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System, Mike Renfro. And Mike, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. You know, there's a lot of veterans who need a lot of help and services that you guys provide on a daily basis. So kind of start out telling us just an overview of the VA here. We are a massive system, so we are one of the top five VAs in the country in terms of size, uh, with our two main hospitals in Nashville and Murfreesboro. Uh, We also have 19 clinics spread across Tennessee and Southern Kentucky, so we are huge. About 5,000 employees that serve a little over 100,000 veterans, 2,000 of those in Murfreesboro. So we've got a huge presence in, in Murfreesboro. And you guys have so many great nurses who help to care for the veterans who go there needing care, some of those in extreme conditions, needing some pretty serious intervention. The nurses there, they, like no other, serve those veterans in so many ways. Yeah, we've got, I mean, just absolutely incredible nursing staff, all of our staff, uh, absolutely incredible. And this week, there's actually a couple weeks and a month that uh, we're really focused on uh, at the VA. The first is that it's Nurses Week, and that's everywhere. So not just the VA. So if you know a VA nurse, think that VA nurse. If you know a nurse anywhere, think that nurse. It's also Public Service Recognition Week, uh, which applies to all of our staff, all 5,000 at Tennessee Valley. A time to recognize those that served in the military and then came over to VA, as well as those that VA has been their only public service. Also, Mental Health Month. We've got quite a bit going on in our advocacy and outreach, both to uh, our employees and our, our veteran population this month. Here locally, you know, like you were saying, you've got a huge number of veterans who seek care at the VA in the Murfreesboro area. But on top of that, there is a need for more nurses. I mean, that's a, a big need really around the country, but here locally as well. We're always hiring nurses. I'll start with that. Uh, and, you know, a couple things uh, about working at the VA. I've been to VA for 18 years. Love my job. Love that I get the opportunity to, to lead this organization. Uh, but I think you'd expect me to say that, right? So <laughs> I'll tell you what our employees tell us. We, the VA, has been continuously ranked in the top 10 of best places to work in the government. We've been number five for two years in a row. Good pay, good benefits, leave, the whole package of uh, things that would attract an employee. But what I think keeps an employee at Tennessee Valley or at the VA is we've just got a good mission. And so we can get you in the door with the pay and the benefits and all that good stuff, the scholarships, the education opportunities. We can keep you in, hopefully keep you in with the mission that we have. But in addition to nurses, you know, if you've been to our campus down at, in Murfreesboro, the York campus, it's like a little city. And so we need plumbers and groundskeepers, administrative staff, engineers, 
everything under the sun, we're, we're hiring for it. And again, we're talking with Mike Renfro, the Deputy Executive Director of the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System and uh, Nurses Week. And again, you guys have a lot of great nurses. We have had some of your nurses on the air. In fact, you guys have one nurse who I believe has been with the VA for over 40 years now even. And there's a lot of nurses who made this their career and they have been there their entire career. It's really incredible. We do obviously retirement ceremonies, but one of the other ceremonies that we do is pins for years of service. And when you give out one of those 40 year pins, I've seen 50 year pins of employees that have dedicated their entire, really their entire working career to serving veterans. And the relationships that are built there, you know, between the nurses, the doctors, and then the patients who come there. There's so many positive relationships that are made, and and some of those relationships end up turning people's lives totally around. You know, seeing, having such a large healthcare system and seeing so many patients, sometimes that can get lost, right? That individual connection, the one-to-one. But just this last Sunday, two days ago, we held our biannual memorial service down in the Murfreesboro campus. And at that campus, we have a hospice unit, our community living center, and you really have an opportunity to see some of the relationships that those families create with the the employees there, especially in those hospice units where some of those patients are spending their last days, weeks, and months with us. And to hear that from the family members of veterans that uh, passed in our care, that really, uh, it touches you. And then to see the way that our employees react, you know, to see an employee of ours get up. We had a rec therapist uh, get up and speak the other day, and it moved him to tears to be able to talk about the relationship that he had had with this one particular veteran whose family member was in the audience or in the chapel that day. So it's really... It goes back to that mission piece, right? Get you in the door with the pay and the benefits. Hope to keep you with the mission. And the nurses there, they realize they are serving those who literally served our country, some of those who served in Vietnam and uh, and so forth. But they understand the importance and significance of their service, and, and that makes a huge difference. And a lot of times, those nurses, they become the advocate for those patients. I mean, it's almost like family. I would say... Also, many of them are veterans themselves, and so many of our employees continue to serve after getting out of the military. You know, every week, and we hold our new employee orientation for our entire health system down in Murfreesboro, I kick them off at 8 o'clock on Monday mornings, and I ask, are you a veteran or family members that are a veteran? And almost every person that comes has some sort of connection that's brought them there. So folks that continue to serve after getting off active duty or getting out of the military, uh, and those that have a son, daughter, spouse, father, mother, whatever it is, some sort of connection. Uh, And that connection is really, really important because they see something in that patient that's more than just a patient. Again, our guest this morning has been Mike Renfro. He is the Deputy Executive Director of the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. And Mike, we appreciate you joining us this morning. And if anybody would like to learn more about the VA, where's the best place to go? So if you're interested in a job, you can always go to usajobs.gov. That's usajobs.gov, G-O-V. Or you can send an email with a resume to tvhs-careers at va.gov. 
It's Mental Health Month, and if you're a veteran out there and you need mental health care, you can come to the VA regardless of your discharge, regardless of your period of service. We have a UCC, an urgent care center, open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. in Murfreesboro, and uh, mental health staff there 24 hours a day at our mental health unit and an ED in Nashville. Or uh, if you need uh, immediate assistance, you can obviously always call 911 if you're experiencing an emergency. But if you just need to get connected, you're experiencing a crisis, you don't know where to go, you can always call the 988 crisis line and speak to someone that can help you get the help that you need. Mike Renfro, the Deputy Executive Director of the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System. We appreciate you joining us this morning. And if anybody would like to learn more about the VA. So if you're interested in a job, you can send an email with a resume to tvhs-careers at va.gov. 